This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Incarceration is a scam. As our guests will argue today, so is policing in every aspect of what is called the carceral state. The approach to criminal justice in the United States clearly doesn't deter crime, and it in no way guarantees justice. Yet this broken system gets bipartisan support from elected representatives. For whatever reason, they've been convinced there is no alternative to an unequal system that not only enforces white supremacy, but imposes anti-blackness. Policymakers from both sides of the aisle understand it's an imperfect system, but they believe any issue can be addressed with reform. Sure, those reforms aren't always perfect, but perfect isn't practical, and only the practical is possible, so why even try? In the end, their refusal to address the structural inequalities at the core of the carceral state leads to minor fixes that never really do anything. Well, they do one thing. With there being a political consensus that tough-on-crime policies are universally politically popular, they must be included in any reform. So, in other words, the one thing mainstream reformers do is expand police power whenever they claim to be fixing the system. We'll discuss the past, present, and future and the many myths of the carceral state in a few minutes when we speak with Kay Whitlock and Nancy A. Heitzig, co-authors of Carceral Khan, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. Kay is a writer and activist focusing on structural violence and inequality. She is co-author of Queer Injustice, The Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States, and Considering Hate, Violence, Goodness, and Justice in American Culture and Politics. Follow Kay on Twitter at K-A-Y- J. Whitlock, K. J. Whitlock. Nancy is professor of sociology at St. Catherine University, whose work centers on race, class, gender, and social control, with particular attention to the prison industrial complex. She is author of the School to Prison Pipeline, Education, Discipline, and Racialized Double Standards. She's also editor of Criminal Injustice, which you can find at criticalmassprogress.com. Follow Nancy on Twitter at N-A-Heitzeg, that's N-A-H-E-I-T-Z-E-G. I'm your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gap-Toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, how was your weekend? Any plans for this week? What's going on with you? I'm good. I'm just uh, I'm just getting back into things. I was sick most of last week, so I'm just I've been resting. Would you like to update people on why you were sick last week? <laughs> well, I don't. Well, I don't know why I was <laughs> I was sick, but you sent me an email in the middle of the week telling me that there was COVID going around that uh, that Reagan Youth show yeah, that I went to. Exactly. But it wasn't COVID. I got a negative test. Oh, so. very good for you. Very <laughs> lucky for you. Hey, did you watch that Fury Wilder fight? Yeah. Yeah. What crazy. happened? Um, Fury won, yeah. Oh, he did? <laughs> yeah, 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 in the 11th. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. 
I gotta check it out. I'm very curious because that the lead up to that was just insane. My weekend was essentially preparing for next weekend as my girlfriend and I are headed downstate to visit family immediately following the Patreon podcast, which this week happens on Thursday morning, streaming live at 10 a.m. at this is uh, yeah patreon.com slash this is hell podcast shortly after at the same place instead of on friday so thursdays and fridays are my biggest research and writing days of the week so i I had to work most of this past weekend to get ahead of myself in order to visit family next weekend without being stressed out the entire time over the radio show also we finished last week by asking for your advice on becoming unexhausted not on how to relax As I explained, I know how to relax. What I do not know is how to overcome this constant feeling of being worn out. Even when I wake up from sleeping or taking a nap, I'm always feeling worn down. Thanks to everyone who sent in their suggestions on how I can become unexhausted, and we'll be sharing that advice with you following today's guests. But more importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is any last words. <laughs> any last words? That is ominous. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guests. Again, the question from hell is any last words, any last words, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's Hangover Cure is Not Water. A career news website called theladders.com posted an article headlined, Water Won't Cure Your Hangover, But This Might. The story states, if you drink slowly over the course of a night, your body will metabolize the toxic chemical byproducts of alcohol much slower than usual, which can reduce the severity of the effects of the following day. Boost your blood sugar with carbs and sugar like honey on toast. Make sure you get a good night's sleep after a night of drinking. Staying hydrated can help while you are drinking booze, but doing so the following day will be too late. They then quote molecular biologist Patrick Schmidt saying, At most, drinking water may alleviate the symptoms of having a dry mouth from drinking and cigarettes, but obviously I'm not going to tell anyone not to drink water if they think it makes them feel better. You can tell yourself your hangover will be less painful if you drink water with every glass of wine, but that won't make it true. That makes this this week's hangover cure, not drinking water. Instead, try drinking slower and boost your blood sugar with carbs and sugar, like honey on toast. Did molecular biologist Patrick Schmidt just endorse smoking cigarettes? I'm pretty sure that's what happened at one point during that. Also, uh, yeah, there's nothing as enjoyable as drinking beer and eating honey on toast. I, that's what I want. I want sticky fingers from honey to be grabbing a beer with. None of that made sense. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is Helen. If you'd like to support our horrible business model that puts you before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week, it's going to be streaming live at 10 a.m. on Thursday. So just 
write that down. Podcast again at patreon.com slash this is hell. On this past, the most recent Patreon podcast, we began with my fantasy that we might actually be able to have a this is hell holiday office party this year. Then it was This Week in Hell, our semi-regular segment reviewing what I got out of last week's shows and guests, what questions I left out of those interviews, and some noteworthy points last week's uh, that last week's guests made in their writing that I never got around to mentioning during those conversations. Again, this is what I got out of the show last week, which might not be what you got out of our talk with Transnational Institute Sylvia Kay and Hamza Hamushan on the fight against free market agriculture and for food sovereignty in North Africa, or our discussion with Stan Vintagen on what he saw when he visited France's oldest ZAD, or Zone to Defend, which continues their experiment in political autonomy from capitalism, or our deep dive into the Panama, or sorry, Pandora Papers with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists Michael W. Hudson, but it is what I got out of those shows last week and what I left out of the show that's worth considering. And because our final guest last week was Mike Hudson, we shared our 2012 interview with him when he was on to discuss his then-just-published book, The Monster, How a Gang of Predatory Lenders and Wall Street Bankers Fleeced America and Spawned a Global Crisis, which explains exactly how the Great Recession really happened. So to hear me fantasize about a This Is Hell holiday office party actually happening this year, my review of what happened on the show last week, and to learn what really happened with the financial crash of 2008, subscribe to our weekly bonus This Is Hell podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Again, this week's is going to be streaming live on Thursday. Thanks to our newest Patreon patrons, Barry C., John B., Joshua W., Rebecca B., and Bhavana N. We truly appreciate all of your support, and we hope you enjoy your This Is Hell advertising stickers, which you will be receiving in the mail shortly, as well as your discount on all This Is Hell merchandise you can find right now at thisishell.com. When you click on support, yes, each and every one of our Patreon subscribers gets a $5 discount off all of our stuff. Coming up, the idea that incarceration works is a scam, We'll also have This Week in Rotten History, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is any last words, any last words. For the first time ever, Jess will have a second hangover cure, and we'll be sharing the advice we receive from listeners on how to become unexhausted. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell the success of incarceration and the entire process around it, from the police to the courtroom to the prison. Well, it's very highly exaggerated, yet this astonishingly unequal system, for whatever reason, receives equal bipartisan support. That support has formed a consensus between centrist liberals and far-right conservatives that agree on reforms, reforms that always include tough-on-crime policies, which only expand the very system they say they are reforming. Here to help us have a better understanding of our carceral state, Kay Whitlock and Nancy A. Heitzig are co-authors of Carceral Con, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. Welcome to This Is Hell. First with you, Kay. Welcome to This Is Hell. It's great to be here, Chuck. Thank you. And welcome to This Is Hell, Nancy. Thank you. 
Kay, let's start with you. You, uh, both of you write in your book, obviously, you describe how the carceral con works using the example of New York City and their correctional facilities dating back to the 1920s in Rikers Island. You explain how in in 2014, when New York City hired McKinsey and Company, a high-powered corporate consulting firm, to help reduce alarming increases in accompanying lawsuits and historically pervasive violence at the Rikers Island jail complex. Before the consultancy was completed, the the city paid McKinsey $27.5 million in 2019. A blistering ProPublica investigation revealed the essential con artistry at the center of the project, pointing out that violence by correctional officers continued to grow and, quote, using the metrics employed by McKinsey, jailhouse violence has risen nearly 50% since the firm began its assignment. Okay, on the front page of today's New York Times, it says that all of the problems at uh, Rikers, uh, they talk about how it's leading to a whole bunch of uh, prisoners flexing their power is what it says in the headline, and that the, uh, the facilities are so deteriorated they need to be repaired. How far would going, would repairing would fixing, would making Rikers a more hospitable place go towards addressing the needs of the people who are at Rikers? Oh, it wouldn't do a thing. What would do would just pour more resources into an essentially structurally unequal, brutally violent uh, system that is... This, the system itself, even Rikers itself, grew out of reform agendas. And it grew out of reform agendas within a context of, of racial capitalism, a system that requires inequality and that equality is enshrined um, through structural racism. So this, what we're seeing is a pattern that repeats over and over and over in many reform arenas. Horrific conditions in prisons or horrific actions of police, whatever it is, are exposed. And there's a fluster of activity uh, as if people really care, uh, as, as if the authorities really care about solving these problems in ways that are humane and in ways that serve deep justice issues. It doesn't happen. What happens is there are flurries of official inquiries, new agendas of reform, which always call for putting more resources into the system are advanced. And we'll always see a storyline that there are violent prisoners at the root of this and that we really need to make sure that they are controlled and we need to make sure that that storyline predominates over the more accurate storyline which is that our carceral system draws from it, it it depends on the on structural inequality that is raced classed gendered and ableist. That's who gets criminalized. That's who comes into the system. It's an unequal, violent system from the very beginning. And a lot of the reform measures intend to blunt protest or blunt 
the public revelation of the brutalities of that system, promised people that we're going to create better conditions, we're going to exercise our uh, oversight role of social control better, and that uh, all of this requires more resources. So what it's going to do is nothing except expand the violence and brutality of Rikers. There's nothing to do but to decarcerate and shut that hell hole down without building more jails. And Kay, you make a very good point because the New York Times article today does start with a scene of violence being caused by those who are incarcerated. That's the core of that focus at, uh, for the New York Times article. And Nancy, uh, the, uh, just the quote that I was just reading, it continues to say that at the core of McKinsey's strategy was the establishment of so-called restart housing units. The algorithmic instrument, the housing unit balancer, was created to assess each resident's dangerousness and distribute people across housing units to minimize conflict and violence. The first test results, dramatically promising, were later discovered to be false. It turned out the consultants and correctional officials cherry-picked housing unit assignments, excluding people considered more troublesome and replacing them with others. When violence inevitably flared, officials using McKinsey, utilizing McKinsey data, initially doubled down on the cherry-picking, finally excluding young adults aged 18 to 21 altogether and failing to address the issue of violent guards. So Nancy, how dependent is the carceral state on false evidence and false assumptions based on those on those that false evidence because even if statements are later proven to be false their impact lingers and there can be a popular belief in a deliberate falsehood so how dependent is the carceral state on a con Uh, almost entirely i would say um you know all of the data driven predictive policing um you know ostensibly neutral um measurements that the system relies on are are informed by um, the system itself, right? Informed by um, police data, court data, correctional data, um, you know, so the system is, mm, it's, a, it, it, it's an insular, self-reinforcing um, system, um, you know, that doesn't look for um, information outside of itself um, that doesn't look for solutions outside of itself. Um, you know, all the data, all the solutions are, you know, generated by the system really with the goal of reinforcing and expanding the system itself. And Kay, uh, you, both of you write that much is made of the closure of some juvenile detention centers and youth prisons throughout the United States. And while the closures are to be applauded, there's a shadow reality as well. And you quote sociologist Alexandra Cox, author of Trapped in a Vice, The Consequences of Confinement for Young People, asking if the facilities are more broadly nicer, does this actually mean that young people's lives will change for the better? You then point out how Cox's work suggests it is the state itself that criminal 
criminalizes and pathologizes marginalized children and administers a society in which few educational, health, housing, employment, and other resources are available to them. This abandonment serves as a pipeline for carceral confinement, at which point the state then focuses on the moral rehabilitation of these young people. So, okay, neoliberalism cuts taxes, slashed resources, means less funding. Less funding means more austerity. More austerity means fewer social services. And often when there are social services, they're administered by the police, part of the carceral state. Is the desire, Kay, is the desire for lower taxes the cause of the carceral state? No, I mean, that's part of the con. There's a lot of, 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 of soothing uh, rhetoric that, um, and powerful uh, public relations campaign that accompany uh, bipartisan reform agendas and campaigns and the formation of coalitions. And the right has always had an anti-tax agenda. They frame one of the reform goals as saving taxpayer dollars in a way that essentially suggests that uh, taxpayer dollars uh, spent for social um, purposes, whether they're good social purposes or horrific social purposes, but in any case, the tax dollars spent for that are actually uh, a form of theft, and they want to reduce taxing uh, completely. In fact, Grover Norquist, one of the the big movers and shakers of so-called bipartisan reform, would love to do away with it altogether. The centrist and liberal members of the reform coalitions seem to be in no position and never have taken on the question of structural inequality that lies at the heart of every discussion we should be having about not only carceral policy, but the conditions that produce a carceral state and that are expanding it um, in, in the United States. The fact of the matter is, is that bipartisan reform is linked, as you say, to a sort of neoliberal agenda, which is also a deregulatory agenda. It's an agenda that allows, that while it guts spending, for the public good, for social purposes, for things like housing, health care, public education, environmental health and protection. While it seeks to gut those expenditures, almost any new influx of resources for policing and militarization is fair game. And the centrist liberal members of these coalitions may not always agree with it, but they've done absolutely nothing to challenge that kind of, of, of limitation of the reform things, uh, reform agendas, which leave the structural inequality, brutality, violence completely intact. And under the guise of saving taxpayer dollars with reforms, actually steer those so-called savings to the extent that they can be documented. In many cases, they can't. Uh, in many cases, there's, there's no data that tells us what the hell is going on. 
but wherever there is some evidence that there are savings from reforms, those are plowed right back in to the criminal legal system and its reform agendas and its public-private proxies so that if there's a sentencing reform, say, that uh, allows some people not to go to prison immediately, it may, quote, divert them through, through different measures. And Nancy can, uh, can talk brilliantly about this into so-called community-based um, alternatives to incarceration or diversion programs. But those themselves are forms of carceral control, and they come with stringent requirements, and they often come with fees that the people who are sent into these diversions must pay themselves. So we've got the bleeding of a society, the bleeding, the gutting, the evisceration of social spending, and we've got the recycling of any so-called savings from reform into more iterations, more expansion through not only the criminal legal system, but it's many public and private proxies. It's quite a scam. Nancy, to follow up on what Kay was just saying, how does community policing, for example, how does that contribute to the carceral con? Community policing or community corrections or both? Uh, both, please. Okay. Um, let me talk about so-called community corrections first, which... You know, to, you know, historically has really meant probation um, or um, parole, um, you know, early release from um, prison. Um, you know, there's 2.3 million people in prison and jail, but there's another 7 million on, under some sort of community supervision. And that does come increasingly with... Um, pretty onerous um, restrictions um, on people, um, including, you know, requirements of drug tests that often um, um, people have to pay for, um, electronic surveillance. Um, One of the new features here is um, um, the rise of specialty courts, so-called specialty courts, where people are theoretically diverted, um, you know, without, without a plea to drug court, veterans court, homeless court, any number of courts that um, really essentially are putting the conditions of probation on people without a conviction. Um, you know, and historically many of these people would have just really, you know, been diverted, um, you know, not charged, not you know, in the system, but, you know, this expanded web of courts and fines and fees is, um, is, is a newer and expanding um, feature of the system, you know, widening the net, people in, um, you know, criminal legal studies would, would, would call it, you know, including more and more people in the system that at earlier periods would have, you know, literally been diverted from the system. Uh, community policing is a whole other um, 
um, problem, you know, this sort of model that um, police could be more effective um, if they built up some relationship or trust with the community. Um, And this, of course, has really expanded um, police surveillance, police, um, you know, interaction um, um, with the community, including at schools. Um, You know, that issue of police in schools is a a whole other problem. Um, It's also um, required endless resources for... um, um, you know, so-called accountability through body cameras, um, more and more police training, um, so-called, um, you know, funding for police community, you know, listening sessions and reconciliation. You know, I mean, I think it's important to note that, you know, the city of Minneapolis, um, where I am right now, um, was part of the um, – Obama administration um, initiative around building community trust and justice um, that, you know, poured millions into um, this community policing model, procedural justice model. And city of Minneapolis was part of that, you know, in 2016 on and, um, you know, really up until the, you know, George Floyd murder, um, you know, was so, so much for that model in terms of, really um, transforming a police department in in, in, in a, any way whatsoever. You know, it becomes a, it becomes another con for pouring more money into the system. So Kay, why is there a belief that no there is no alternative to prison? Because you start you, you two start your book with a quote. Uh, at the very beginning of your book, from Black Studies scholar Jackie Wang, writing in the 2018 book Carceral Capitalism, everywhere I look, I see sleepwalkers under the spell of the prison. What counterspell is powerful enough to break the prison's stranglehold on our imaginations? So, Kay, why is there a belief that there is no alternative to prison? Why can't we imagine a form of justice that is not based on incarceration? Well, in order to do that, this country will first have to come to terms with its bloody and brutal history of settler colonialism, chattel slavery, and uh, many ruthless anti-immigrant struggles. The fact is that the criminal legal system and systems of punishment arise out of structural inequality. That's economic inequality. It's racial inequality. The, the two, in fact, and we say this over and over and over in, in Carceral Con, that it is impossible to separate economic and racial structural inequality and violence in any kind of way. The entire system is built on that and has been since the beginning. The fact of the matter is that the system did not develop to deal with so-called crime. You can go back through a lot of history. Andrea Ritchie, Joey Mogul, and I wrote about some of that history with regard to the policing of, of queerness, sex, and gender in um, uh, our book Queer Injustice uh, in, in 2011. 
a number of historians have really documented the history of inequality and violence from the beginning in the formation of police forces. The police forces in this country grow out not only of the slave patrols, but they grow out of um, efforts to, to break the power of ordinary working people to organize for better working conditions, for better wages, et cetera, et cetera. So the entire system, including how crime is defined, is really developed as a means of social control and it's developed as a means of enforcing racial hierarchies and economic hierarchies and gender hierarchies. That's the way it's always been. What we deal with is the, the public relations around this, the effort to convince the country, which a pretty good job of which has been done, that the criminal legal system is really where we triage and deal with danger. It's where we create public safety. It's where we control um, the violence. But in fact, the criminal legal system arises out of larger systems of structural inequality, economic, racial, gender, ableist inequality, in this society and it how do I want to say this the criminal legal system itself distills reproduces and produces new forms of that structural equality inequality and structural violence so it's in the very DNA of how the system um, was created to get to it, we honestly have to look at the general systems of inequality and violence in this country, the structural forms, which are far more massive in producing violence and endangering the lives and well-being of not only individuals, but entire communities, entire demographics um, in this country. That's what carceral con emphasizes over and over, that you cannot look at this system in a standalone context apart from the racial capitalist system in which it continues to unfold and evolve and which is at its very roots. So, Nancy, in your opinion, then, why do mainstream reformers refuse to acknowledge that structural racism and poverty are at the heart of issues with, within criminal justice? Well, well, I mean, mm-hmm. if you if you acknowledge that, then you know, then the, the the then you have to go to abolition, and 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 you know, let me let me hold that for a minute, but but let me add to what what Kay said, if I could, about the. Um, you know the the sleepwalkers and the um, um, real refusal or inability to um, um, get beyond the idea that um, public safety has to be um, equated with a criminal legal system. Um, you know a very important piece of the prison industrial complex 
um, is media um, um, and propaganda, whether it's print, um, um, television, um, you know, online, whatever form it takes, entertainment or news, but we are like inundated 24-7 with these images of um, danger, um, with these stories of law and order and blue bloods and, um, uh, you know, endless. I mean, if you really were going to think about what percentage of our television programming is like devoted to, you know, crime and punishment and, um, you know, policing, um, it's, it's astounding. And so, um, we're surrounded, um, by this continually, um, anytime that there's any sort of effort to, um, push back against the system, whether it's, you know, defund the police, um, um, you know, et cetera, we, you know, we then get this, um, hysterical ramping up again of, of fear and danger and um, highly inaccurate discussions of supposed crime waves. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a difficult uh, fog to pierce. Um, and uh, Kay, uh, you, well, let me reintroduce you to our listening audience. We are speaking with Kay Whitlock and Nancy A. Heitzeg, co-authors of Carceral Khan, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. Kay, you remind us, because uh, we you were just discussing uh, public relations, and you remind us that in the State of the Union address to Congress on February 5th, 2019, President Donald Trump lifted up passage of the First Step Act, featuring a set of federal re- sentencing reforms as a groundbreaking achievement in criminal justice reform and bipartisan cooperation across a presumptive Republican-Democratic divide. You mentioned how Trump's guests that evening were Alice Marie Johnson, who had served 22 years in prison before Trump commuted her life sentence for a drug-related offense, and Matthew Charles, sentenced to 35 years for selling drugs and released of- and uh, related offenses. Charles was the first person released from federal prison under First Step reforms, but you add feel-good snapshots of reform and action often tell pleasing public relations half-truths while less palatable more complicating realities of the same story remain in the shadows so Kay, what are those complicated realities that remain in the shadows when the president is commuting sentences and releasing prison uh, prisoners under new reforms what are those complicating realities that are not being wit- or recognized well let's just take first step uh for the moment, and and then we can go uh, more broadly beyond that. Relatively few people in the federal prison system are eligible for early release under First Step Act. Some of those people who were originally released were immediately rearrested and taken into immigrant detention. The First Step Act mandated mandated the creation of an entirely new algorithmic risk assessment instrument called Pattern. And Pattern is to be administered to all federal prisoners, and it is allegedly. Uh, not only to assess their appropriateness 
uh, if they meet other eligibility, narrow eligibility criteria uh, for early release, but to uh, assess their so-called uh, social and emotional and other needs um, while in prison. So what we have within first step that is 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 touted as a major uh, release effort is actually releasing. It does release people, and we should always celebrate when when people are are getting released and certainly do not need to be spending their lives uh, in the violence of, of of prison. But it also creates an entirely new surveillance tool, an entirely new criminal justice record through the pattern risk assessment, so much so that originally the ACLU, the NAACP, and some other uh, centrist liberal organizations opposed the First Step Act. They got some modest concessions, so they supported it, but they still opposed the pattern risk assessment thing. And they and uh, a whole slew of organizations across the country have continued to object to that and continue to point out that this risk assessment tool is still structured around um, racial and economic bias, and there's no way for that to come out. Beyond first step, so so first of all, we have this idea that First Step is really making a huge impact, and it's really releasing a lot of people. And as I say, while we can rejoice that, the pe that people are being released to some degree, the eligibility criteria are stringent, and nowhere near enough people are being released to really impact mass incarceration in this country. Now, the federal prison system is only one piece of a much larger, more complicated um, kind of system. Donald Trump doesn't give a damn about racial and economic justice, although when he promoted First Step and, and, and spoke on signing and mentioned it in his State of the Union, um, address, he, his, his rhetoric suggested that he actually cares about this. Not so. Beyond things like first step, you will have the idea that um, reformers really understand the brutality and unfairness of the system and are working to sort of change that. But nothing really changes. We can look at Rikers, but we could also look at prisons in South Carolina, in California, in Mississippi, in Tennessee, in Illinois. We can look at prisons and jail systems all over the country, and you're going to find extraordinary, ongoing, day-to-day -day brutality and violence much of which is perpetrated by the state or actors, guards, correctional officers, other officials in state names, uh, in, 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 in the, who, who are working for the state in the name of the state. This violence 
is never actually going to be addressed. And one of the things I wanted to follow up on in, in Nancy's um, comments about um, about some of the evidence-based uh, assertions of the reform agenda, which is that they will assert that we are doing these things because the evidence says that this will help, quote, reduce racial disparities. It doesn't say a damn thing about impacting structural racism. Uh, and reducing racial disparities, by the way, takes the form in some areas of, well, let's just incarcerate more poor white people. And then it will look like we're incarcerating fewer people of color, especially black people. Um, not really true, but uh, we'll, we'll use these measurements that we ourselves draw from our own sources, as Nancy says, it's a closed self-reinforcing uh, system. And one of the things that Reform Inc., as we call it, does do that's really interesting is it promotes its so-called smart justice, evidence-based justice, which is alleged to be neutral and unbiased and discounts what they call anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence, for the record, is really the evidence that incarcerated people themselves give about their experiences in prison. What we have is a system that is saying, we'll manage this, we'll manage this whole thing beautifully, and we will convince you that in doing so, we will actually make the lives of people better. Some reforms make the lives of some people a little better, but nowhere enough in Prison Policy Initiative, which is a great source of, 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 for research and um, good looks at who actually is incarcerated and how and what is the extraction in terms of lives, health, and money uh, from incarcerated populations and populations under community-based systems of, of carceral control. So you've got this ongoing promise that we care, we see the violence, and we're going to make it better. But the evidence of people who are incarcerated is essentially pushed away as evidence-based and anecdotal. So I'm trying to think of how to sum up what I think about those half-truths, those soothing pieces of rhetoric, and the real violence um, that they pave over and cover up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes words fail me. 
Uh, Nancy, well, you uh, and Kay also write that the carceral state, carceral systems of control and carceral power refer to repressive, punishing means of social and economic control and surveillance within the formal criminal legal system and its many public-private institutional proxies. So, Nancy, how dependent is our political and economic system upon that social and economic control and surveillance for its success, if not its survival. Are social and economic control and surveillance necessary for our political economy to effectively operate, to have what it would call success? You know, I think it's highly dependent on it. And, you know, that's been, a, uh, you know, part of the evolution um, of our, you know, political economy really since the, 1970s, you know, because you can lay over the um, um, expansion of the carceral state um, with, you know, larger economic shifts, um, a move towards neoliberal austerity models, um, you know, I mean, very, very dependent. I mean, it's a huge employment apparatus, um, you know, $184 billion budget, um, you know, a big chunk of that is um, employing people who work in the sector, you know, that's been some of the challenges um, around um, closing, you know, prisons or jails, you know, I mean, often out in, in, in you know, rural areas where they become, um um, kind of the sole economic opportunity for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, very dependent, um, you know, in terms of who is swept up. Um, huge percentage of people who are, um, you know, unemployed at the time of their commitment offense, um, you know, the system becomes, uh, you know, the, the, the solution for managing, criminalizing poverty, um, managing, quote unquote, um, you know, the houseless situation. I mean, it, 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 it's so tightly wound up together now. Um, you know, certainly if your viewers haven't read it, I mean, I would really recommend um, Golden Gulag by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, Carswell geographer extraordinaire i mean because that really does such an outstanding job you know focuses on california but this is really the template for um what's happened everywhere in terms of economic shifts political shifts um decisions um to really rely on um carceral state as a solution too many economic and political challenges. And Kay, uh, let me oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Kay. I was going to ask. Uh, what I wanted to just add is that the current, really coordinated wave of of, of brokered bipartisan um, uh, reforms really serves efficiently as one of many vehicles for the upward redistribution of resources, for keeping structural inequality mm -hmm. and violence intact. Uh, it also is 
completely silent on the basis that Ruth Wilson Gilmore in her book, for example, uh, really takes on brilliantly. And that is how much our current economy and political system is dependent on the organized abandonment of entire regions, entire Mm -hmm. communities. And by organized abandonment, I'm going to say, you know, tolerating unemployment, the withdrawal of health care accessibility, um, the gutting and evisceration of health care systems, the gutting and evisceration of, of public education, uh, of other kinds of resources. A carceral state depends on these two things essentially, and it depends on a lot more, but you will always see the upward redistribution of, 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 of resources and rights to the already wealthy, to the already uh, privileged, and the organized abandonment of marginalized communities who will be predominantly poor, predominantly uh, people of color. And you will see the constant invocation of budget crisis to distract us from the reality that what this country needs is a new focus with different, wildly, radically different social, economic, and environmental priorities. Those are structural issues. And Kay, you mentioned, you and uh, Nancy mentioned in the book, the structures of racial capitalism, an analytical concept advanced by political theorist Cedric Robinson in his groundbreaking book, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. Robinson argues that capitalism is a global system that evolved from and requires racialized hierarchy, inequality, exploitation, and violence. Racism is not a byproduct of capitalism. It is intrinsic to it. So Kay, without racism then, is there capitalism? The two go hand in hand. Capitalism has always depended on racial hierarchy. Always. Mm-hmm. And how that racial hierarchy may express itself in different areas may differ from somewhat. It may be somewhat different in Europe than it is in the United States. In the United States, it takes, it is essentially white supremacist. It is essentially um, informed by a really virulent streak of anti-blackness that absolutely refuses to admit the full humanity of black people, black communities. Nancy, let's talk about that anti-blackness for a moment. You write in the United States, whiteness stands at the apex of racial hierarchy, or at least the institutionalized political construct and cultural mythos of whiteness. Here, racial capitalism is buttressed by a particularly virulent current of anti-blackness. This refers to the structural refusal of U.S. society to fully recognize the humanity of black people while conflating their collective existence with the active presence of social disorder, danger, and criminality. So it's not only white supremacy, it's also anti-blackness, the structural refusal of U.S. society to fully recognize 
the humanity of black people. White supremacy has come up on our show in dozens and dozens of Mm -hmm. conversations, but the term anti-blackness has never been, or maybe it has been rarely used. I just doesn't. I just don't remember it being used. What happens, Nancy, when we recognize white supremacy, white supremacy for what it is, but do not do so to the same extent with anti-blackness? What is missed in any conversation of whiteness or white supremacy when anti-blackness is not included by name? Well, I mean, in the, in the United States, you you really miss the. Um, you know, one of the key cornerstones of the founding of this nation. Um, I'm pausing because that's so much. I mean, there's so much. So I'm um, trying to streamline my comments for you. Um, You know, certainly, I mean, the aftermath of slavery, I mean, what you know slavery in various forms um existed historically around the world but a particular feature of um of slavery in the united states was um the political and legal construction of slavery as something that you know was was only possible for um people who were defined as black um so race based slavery um, is part of the peculiarity of, um, you know, that institution in the United States, um, you know, and post, post-slavery, um, we see that, um, you know, the criminal legal system then becomes the primary vehicle for um, continuing to maintain the political and economic control over over black people that existed during slavery and we could have a big conversation about plantation prison farms and convict lease and um web du bois talking about imputation of crime to color you know more than a hundred years ago so um that's an old root um that we have never never addressed. And Kay, did you want to add something? Let to, me, yeah, go ahead. yeah, I just wanted to mention that it's where um, racial inequality and violence have been codified in particular ways um, throughout the history of, of this country. And to point to the primacy of anti-blackness is not by any means to deny the virulent racism also directed against indigenous peoples, uh, Latinx, uh, and many poor Asian communities. It's what we are saying is that anti-blackness is both a practice and a kind of model into which racist practices against other groups um, also also uh, take form and evolve and evolve. I mean, there's the indigenous, certainly the indigenous genocide. There are horrific um, anti-immigrant, anti-Asian things. But if you want to look at how a structural apparatus in a nation develops um, to manage rights, 
an economy and the distribution of social and environmental resources. Uh, wow. Anti-blackness is the model and the practice. Mm-hmm. I have one last question for each of you. We have been speaking with Kay Whitlock and Nancy A. Heitzig, co-authors of Carceral Con, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. The question we may hate to ask, (laughs) you may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. So, Kay, let's start with you. Can the United States survive the end of white supremacy? Not in the way it is currently constructed, no. What will emerge is something different. And I say that because there are a lot of assumptions about what the United States is and a lot of idealistic ideas about what the United States is. I'm going to take a risk and say, No, in the way it is constantly constituted, it cannot survive, but something better can come and evolve and take its place. All right, so Nancy, let me follow up on that. So can capitalism survive without white supremacy? I'm I'm pausing. That that is the question from hell. you know, probably not. It requires, you know, it, it. well, I'm just going to say no, because historically the emergence of capitalism, you know, Western Europe, Northern Europe, 14, 1500s, coincides historically with the, um, you know, the beginning of the pseudoscience of race, the, the constructions of um um, quote-unquote race that still operate today. It also coincides with um, um, the emergence and rise of colonialism and um, um, all of the disasters that flow from that. So, um, so no. They Kay. could go down together. Yeah. Kay, thank you very much for being on the show this week. And Nancy, thank you. And Nancy, yeah, thank, thank you, you very much. It's, this has been a fa- fascinating conversation. Your book is really incredible. Everybody should check out Carceral Con. I know we've just had about a 45-minute conversation on it, but I'm telling you there's a lot more to this book than just a 45-minute conversation. We could do one of these every week for the next month and a half. So thank you very much, Kay and Nancy. I really appreciate having you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. Email me at chuck at com and please prove me wrong. If what you just heard from Kay and Nancy on the scam that is incarceration, if that made you angry or mad or gave you anxiety or enlightened you in some way or maybe you actually learned that yes this really is hell show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember we are commercial free we are grant free we are not a not-for-profit because we don't make enough profits to afford to be a not-for-profit so all we get is your support and we always appreciate it just please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far 
This week's question from hell is any last words? Any last words? This should be good. <laughs> Dan, or Dank O says, thank you, sir. May I have another? Oh, Jesus. Adam A, now if you'll all just follow me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Brian C, uh, if you use promo code Alpha Brain Force Plus, you'll get an additional 10% off your first order. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Any last words? Any last words? Fabio L, please like, comment, and subscribe. Ooh. Yikes. <laughs> Paulo S, I thought you said you wanted to fire me, not at me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Chris H says, life begins at death and ends at birth. <laughs> Barrett McHugh um, says, I just want the record to reflect that I ordered SpaghettiOs for my last meal and not spaghetti. <laughs> all right. Uh, and that's all for today. Yeah, all right. Jeffs will have more, or tomorrow's producer, Alex, will have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, any last words? Any last words? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. That is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History on October 12th, 1925, 96 years ago this Tuesday, some 600 U.S. troops entered Panama at the request of that country's president, Rodolfo Chiari, as the uh, country was shut down by demonstrations connected with a major rent strike in Panama City and elsewhere. And it says a lot about a government whose president would call in foreign troops to put down worker uprisings. And it says a lot about the country willing to come in and stop workers from striking. The strike had been brought on by tax increases, giving oligarchic slumlords an excuse to suddenly raise their rents by as much as 100% or more. Well, now it all makes sense. Of course, a country run by oligarchic slumlords would call in foreign troops to stop workers from striking. Renters who managed to avoid being evicted were forced to endure unsanitary conditions in their cheaply and poorly constructed living spaces. The renters' demonstrations had turned violent after four people were killed by police in Panama City. When U.S. troops arrived to help suppress the revolt, they and the Panamanian police killed at least another two demonstrators, injured dozens more, and arrested large numbers of people, including children under the age of 10. Wow. The U.S. troops remained in Panama for almost two weeks, finally departing on October 23rd. Oligarchic slumlords forcing people to live in squalor and then inviting occupying forces to act like mercenaries and violently suppress a revolution. It's a libertarian dream come true. In Rotten History, October 13, 1960, 61 years ago this Wednesday, the Soviet nuclear submarine K-8 sustained a rupture in one of its steam generator tubes when on patrol in the Barents Sea in the Arctic north of Scandinavia. It required the crew to hastily improvise a workaround to move cooling water to the reactor to prevent a core meltdown. Nuclear submarine, ruptured tubes, a workaround... This rotten history's got everything. In the meantime, the submarine was filled with radioactive gas at levels so high that radiation detectors aboard the vessel could not measure it, which cannot be good. Three members of the crew were seriously injured. Ten years later, same submarine apparently was saved from that disaster, caught on fire off the Atlantic coast of France, 
sank to the bottom in water almost three miles deep, or four and a half kilometers for those of you keeping metric score at home. 58 crew members were killed. The submarine still sits at the bottom of the ocean with two damaged nuclear reactors and four nuclear torpedoes. I mean, what could possibly go wrong other than a nuclear meltdown and multiple nuclear explosions at the bottom of the ocean? Finally, in this week in Rotten History, on October 16, 1968, 53 years ago this Saturday, at the Olympic Games in Mexico City, the African-American sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos placed first and third in the 200-meter dash, winning the gold and bronze medals, respectively. I'm curious how this will become Rotten History. As the U.S. National Anthem was played in the medal ceremony, Smith and Carlos bowed their heads and raised their black-gloved fists in a black power salute as a silent protest against racial discrimination in the United States. So, all good so far. Photos of the moment flashed around the world, and the two men were quickly denounced by Olympic officials and other conservative commentators who insisted on missing the point of their gesture. Everett Barnes, director of the U.S. Olympic Committee, issued a formal statement claiming that Smith and Carlos, quote, made our country look like the devil, and now this truly has become rotten history. Both athletes were immediately suspended and were soon ordered to leave the Olympic Village within 48 hours. I mean, how dare you make a gesture of liberation at the Olympic Games? The Olympic Games are not about liberation. The white Australian sprinter Peter Norman, who placed second in the event, expressed solidarity with Smith, Smith and Carlos and had actually lent them his black gloves to wear on the award platform, which I think I knew that at one point, but I forgot it until I read it here in Rotten History that the Australian sprinter who came in second was the guy who gave them the black gloves. And now it's back to not being Rotten History. I mean, it's a very cool gesture. Upon returning to his home country, he too was denounced and ridiculed and it's rotten history all over again. After the sprinter Peter Norman died of a heart attack in 2006, Smith and Carlos flew to Australia to be pallbearers in his funeral, and it ends on a not-so-rotten note. That's rotten history, kind of, and this is hell. Jess, can you please tell us who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, here at thisishell.com. On tomorrow's show, we'll be speaking with Chuck Collins on the report Silver Spoon Oligarchs, How America's 50 Largest Inherited Wealth Dynasties Accelerate Inequality from the Institute of Policy Studies. This is like Chuck's eighth or tenth time being on the show, and I'm going to dig through our really old archives and see if I can find one of his earliest, if not first, appearance here on the show, because he's been coming on for years. It's been like five or six years since he was on most recently, but I think that's going to be the Patreon interview that we will be sharing this week. And on Wednesday's show, we don't know yet is that correct we don't know yet but jeffy will be back on jeff dorchin to deliver a moment of truth we are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on this is hell if you are interested in running the board as jess has today email me at chuck at this is hell.com chuck at this is hell.com if you'd like to join us here on this is hell Email me at chuck at this is hell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 
West Devon in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Shows begin at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday with our podcast being recorded either and streaming live as well, either on Thursday or Friday mornings. However, we are very flexible and we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to also have access to a professional studio to do your own projects. This position does come with a stipend. So keep that in mind. If you are interested in becoming a board operator, again, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you do need to live in the Chicago area. However, we're also seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely. Stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos. You too can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you like. For instance, every time we post a show online, And at our site, we include a poll quote from the interview to give visitors a little taste of what they can expect when they listen. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer here on our show, here in the studio, if you're interested in doing that, email us at chakathisishell.com. If you're interested in uh, contributing online, like doing the poll quotes, email us at chakathisishell.com. So we're doing something right now that is completely unprecedented in the 25-year, three-month history of This Is Hell, and that is we have a second hangover cure this week. Originally, this was going to be this week's one and only hangover cure, but I felt it was not right to have Jess read this while today's guests were on hold waiting to be interviewed, and I am glad I made that decision. The last thing we want is Jess to be embarrassed or our guests to be distracted by something as ridiculous as a hangover cure. All that said, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Jess has this week's second hangover cure. This week's second hangover cure is British chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author Jamie Oliver's secret hangover cure. (laughs) MyLondon.News posted an article earlier this month, headline British chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. Um, Writer Beth Gulliver quotes Oliver saying, If your hangover is 110% bad, there is this option of a cure, taught to me by an Indian guru. You just grab a teaspoon of cumin and you neck it. It'll settle your tummy, it's quite repulsive, but it works. We can only assume that when Oliver says we should neck it, he simply means swallow the cumin. As for Oliver being a naked chef, the term applies to his simple style of cooking. However, in the article he admits to cooking naked once, and just once, explaining, The only thing I was wearing was a bow on the end of it. A red bow to be specific. I tied it, and it was a double knot. (laughs) I opened the oven and checked the sea bass halfway through. When When I went to check, what I imagined was a perfect laser shot of steam attacked my penis. Attacked my penis. I like how he anthropomorphizes it. <laughs> that makes this week's hangover cure, neck a teaspoon of cumin, whatever that means. <laughs> so that's why we didn't want to share that Well, Nancy and Kay were on hold. We ended last week by asking for your advice on how I can become unexhausted. Not how to relax, that's different, but how, to, how do I get over this problem of constantly feeling fatigued? Whenever I'm not doing the radio show, from the moment the show ends until the next one begins, I feel constantly worn out. So I asked for your advice on how to become unexhausted, and some of you have reached out via email at chuck at thisishell.com. First, we heard from Teresita, who writes, Chuck, there is so much to say. I'll try to help a bit. Do not exercise more per se. 
already loving what Teresita's writing. Do not introduce more stress unless controlled by adaptogenic purposes. Walk pace till you feel better. Make sure you're up on vitamin D. Figure out your sleep cycle, amount of hours, somewhere between seven and nine hours a night, and when to sleep, when to wake up. Eat lots of greens and maybe more fat and less carbs. When drinking alcohol, start early and end early. Finish four to six hours before sleep. Finish drinking caffeine six to eight hours before sleep. Be in natural light as much as possible and take a siesta sometime between noon and three for only 15 to 30 minutes if needed. Energy is about light, food, and then exercise. So figure out how these variables affect you. Personally, I need to walk during the evening while watching the sunset, or I want a nap at 8 p.m. I'm best to be in bed sometime between 10.30 and 11.15 and wake up according to the sunrise. I eat one or two meals midday because if I eat too much during the day in frequency and in amount, in general, I'm exhausted. I believe in day drinking, if drinking. If you're going to drink all day, you gotta start in the morning. Your cycle is individual and will take a while for you to figure out, but little by little you will. Be patient and kind to yourself and know dopamine is the journey to play with. Noting adrenal fatigue doesn't scientifically exist. Breathing practices are a real thing for heart rate brain waves, but only need to do for a short time, like in three breaths to regulate. Andrew Huberman is a good resource in learning your threshold and neurobiology, acting in the and your environment. Best to you, Teresita. That sounds like very experienced advice, and it would be awesome to get up with the sunrise and to have a schedule more synchronized to daylight. But the parts that stuck out most to me are that Teresita believes in day drinking and that dopamine is the journey to play with. And now I want to party with Teresita. We also heard from Bill who writes, Chuck, vitamin B12 has been called businessman's speed. <laughs> businessman's speed? That's what vitamin B12 is called? My father, 40 years ago, injected it once or twice a week to keep his energy up. Jesus Christ, is your father Hunter Thompson? He claimed he was anemic but I have no idea if that was true or the rationalization this, his doctor used to issue the prescription. Also, I went to House on the Rock last year with my wife and daughter, and we all thought it was a hoot. If you like kitsch, it is worth the price of admission. And just a few miles up the road is Taliesin, which is more definitely worth the trip. So Bill's referring to a, a few weeks ago when the question from hell was, what are you having second thoughts about? And Gregory won with the answer, the house on the rock. Bill, I did not realize Frank Lloyd Wright's estate was nearby, which does make going to the house on the rock up in Wisconsin more attractive. Even if Frank Lloyd Wright was a horrible, horrible racist. I do enjoy his architecture and design, though. Oh, great. Now I'm having second thoughts while going to Taliesin. Finally, we also got an email from Andrew with advice on how I can become unexhausted. Andrew, thanks for your suggestion, but as you point out yourself, the product you suggest while supposedly mixing well with THC is positioned to be a N, I should say, MLM. That's a multi-level marketing scheme. That does not disqualify your suggestion as possibly a good product that would fix my unexhaustion. However, I am very skeptical of all MLMs, but 
you'd figure the product must have some merit if you can build up a successful marketing scheme around them. Hell, if I could turn This Is Hell into an anti-capitalist, multi-level marketing scheme, I would. The revolution will not be televised, but what if it can be made into a multi-level marketing scheme and take the market down from the inside? To sum up, so far, listeners have suggested I become unexhausted by day drinking and starting drinking in the morning, I might add, through dopamine or by using the businessman's speed and if all else fails, by products pushed through a marketing scheme. Thanks to today's guests, Kay Whitlock and Nancy A. Heitzig, co-authors of Carceral Khan, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. Thanks to Jess for running the board. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is not drinking water. Instead, try drinking alcohol slower and boost your blood sugar with carbs and sugars like honey on toast or neck a teaspoon of cumin, whatever that means. I just cannot picture myself eating honey on toast while drinking. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.